Hi, I'm Vashi Kapelos, and welcome to the West Block Podcast. This week, we'll talk about the call to delay legalizing pot, and North Korea launches another missile. Should Canada join the ballistic missile defense program in case one hits our shores? And tobacco giant Philip Morris International wants the government to ease tobacco restrictions. We'll ask why. But first, pot. Senior police officials are telling the government they will not be ready by next July to enforce a new law on cannabis. They need more time. So will the government delay legalization? Joining me now is Bill Blair, former police chief for Toronto and the parliamentary secretary to the Minister of Justice. Mr. Blair, great to have you on the show. It's good to be here. Appreciate it. This week, during, uh, or last week, I'm sorry, during a number of committee hearings, we heard from the OPP, Saskatoon Police, the uh, Canadian Association of Police Chiefs, all saying, look, we're not ready for this deadline. We won't be ready to enforce legalizing marijuana by July 1st of next year. Are you willing to delay that deadline? Well, actually, let me be really clear on what they actually said. And, and what they said, and it's right in their written submission as well, is that they need to know that the funding and the resources are going to be there. Last week, we announced $274 million to provide them with that funding, would provide them with that resource, the training that they're going to need to do the job. But they were very clear. If they don't get those resources and they can't do the training, then they won't be able to do it. But we're going to meet those conditions. I've been working and meeting with the police chiefs from across the country and with the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police. I used to be their president, and I used to chair their organized crime committee. I've been meeting with them for nearly two years. They've made it very clear to us what they needed to do the job, and we're making sure they get what they need. So after you said that, though, and I, and I quote um, one, of the, one of the police, um, test, somebody testifying said, we haven't been able to even start preparing any training packages or training in any sense because we at this point don't know what is going to be encompassed in both provincial and federal legislation or municipal. So we're sort of in a holding pattern. And that's following the money. I know you've announced the money, but they don't know where it's going yet. Well, again, let, let's also be clear. All of the enforcement authorities, all of the charges and, and, and the law that the police currently use to deal with organized crime, illegal production, illegal import-exportation, illegal trafficking, none of that's changing. And so they already have all of those tools and they're keeping them. And they know what they're doing. They're very good at that. And, th and so that work will continue. Much of the regulation will be managed within the Provincial Offenses Act in each province. Police officers every single day write tickets under their Provincial Offenses Act. And quite frankly, new regulations come out to the police all the time. I used to run a large police service, the largest in Canada. And when we would get information on new, new regulations, we would use the tools that were available to us. Those tools are not changing. And so, yes, the police do need that information. But we know that if we provide them with the resources that they ask for and, and the training that they require, they can get this job done. You know, there's a lot of work, and, and no, I'm not minimized the complexity of this. I've been working with this and with them, with provinces, territories, and municipalities on this for over two years, and we've got a lot of work to do, but it's also, I'll, I'll tell you why I think it's really important. Today, our kids are using cannabis at the highest rate of any country in the world. That's, that's, that presents a very serious health and social risk to our kids. It's unacceptable to me. I spent my whole life protecting kids, and, and leaving them in that type of jeopardy is unacceptable. They also face the threat of criminal prosecution, and that's another real significant social harm that many parents worry about. As well, organized crime makes billions of dollars on this every single year. The illicit market is, is estimated to be worth between 8 and $10 billion a year. It's also unacceptable to, me, uh, unacceptable to me as a former police officer that we would continue to allow organized crime to profit in the billions to continue to allow our kids to be, remain in the jeopardy that they're in today and continue to, to allow the health of Canadians to be compromised because what th almost 30% of them are consuming is unregulated, untested and unsafe. And so we can't drag our feet on this. We've got a lot of work to do, but it's incumbent upon all of us who care about our kids and our communities, the safety of our communities, 
to, to get to work and to get this thing done. So does that mean that the July 1st, 2018 deadline is set in stone? I think, I think it's important that we establish a date and let Canadians know what's, what's happening and what's coming. And we've been doing that work. We've, so it is set in stone? Well, well, again, that's the date that I've been given. That's the date I'm working towards. That's the date the provinces are working towards. You know, New Brunswick. But even the provinces, we're hearing from them last week at the, well, the justice minister's meeting, they're having trouble keeping these deadlines as well. They've got a lot of work to do. Provinces have many responsibilities. So and, why and we've added it? something. Well, we're not rushing it. We're getting but the we're job hearing done. from people that it feels rushed. Well, because it's a lot of work. But New Brunswick announced today the framework that they're going to be implementing. Ontario did last week. I understand Quebec is going to do so shortly. People have been working hard on this with like senior officials at the federal, provincial and municipal level have been working together on this for over two years. You know, the FPT Justice Minister's meeting is taking place this week in, in Vancouver. This is a, a significant topic of conversation. People are working collaboratively. Everybody understands, you know, the Canadian Public Health Association, the Canadian Pediatric Society came before a committee this week and said, you can't delay. The risk to our kids is unacceptable. And, the, and a public health framework is exactly the right way to do this. And so we believe we've got a responsibility to move forward, not recklessly, carefully, thoughtfully, Doing, do, making sure that we do it right. And I think it's really important that we all do this right, but it's also important that we not drag the puck. Understood, but I think, I think I'm sure you would understand uh, some Canadians are concerned when they do hear spe specifically police, as you know, such trusted, trusted people in society saying, we don't feel like we have the tools yet. Not to say that we won't, but yet. And I, just so I make sure I, I understand correctly, are you saying with those resources there should be no issues for law enforcement? Law enforcement has a very, very significant role to play in this. I've been meeting with the police chiefs. I went to their, their annual conference in Montreal in August. I spent well over an hour with all of those same officers and, and police chiefs from across the country. I answered every question they had to me. And nobody said, we can't do this. What they said very clearly is, we need resources. We need to, to know where the money's going to come from. We need help with the training for standardized field sobriety testing. We need help with training for drug recognition experts. We need money and resources to train and equip our officers with the tools and technologies they're going to need to do this job. They also have to train their officers on that on those tools and, and equipment. And, and police officers are exceptionally well trained. Again, I, I used to run an 8,000 person police service. I know the training that's required and it's important, but, but we are prepared to give them that information. You know, we've been working with them all along on this thing. I think quite rightfully, the point that they've made is, you know, don't just throw this legislation over the fence and say, good luck with that. We need help with the resources. We need help with the training. And, and we need clear and explicit direction. They're going to get that from us. You know, they, they want to know what those regulations are. We're in committee all this week. And that, that work is, is moving forward. The provinces are coming forward with their regulatory frameworks. When the police have that information and they have the resources to train their officers, then they'll be able to do this job, and I'm very confident they'll do it exceptionally well. I'm Vashi Capellos. You're listening to the West Block Podcast. This year alone, North Korea has launched over 10 ballistic missiles. At present, if one of those missiles were to hit Canada, we are not able to defend ourselves. The U.S. has a ballistic missile defense program, BMD, but because we're not a part of it, American policy is not to defend Canada. So is it time to join BMD? Joining me now to discuss is former diplomat Colin Robertson and retired Lieutenant General George McDonald. Donald, former Deputy Commander-in-Chief at NORAD. Thank you both so much for being here. I appreciate it. Mr. McDonald, let me start with you. Should we join BMD? Absolutely. I think that um, the NORAD mission, which has been aerospace warning and defense mm -hmm. for almost 60 years now, uh, always included ballistic missile warning, but a natural extension of defense was not agreed to by the Canadian government in 2005. I think it would be a natural partnership with the United States for us to contribute to 
ballistic missile defense as well as the other missions that NORAD has naturally. And what about you, Mr. Robertson? Should we join BMDNY? Uh, yes, we should, because conditions have changed since the original assessment made in 2005. And But in doing so, go in with our eyes wide open. The Americans aren't asking us to come in, so we're doing this to defend Canadians, not because the Americans are wanting this. In fact, this will complicate things for the Americans. We also want to find out what the cost is going to be. Does BMD really work, and how is it going to protect Canada, and how much role are we going to have in the management of that system? These are important questions I think we'll have to ask, but we should Canadians be aware that the Americans aren't asking us. Uh, they have something that protects them, but we chose not to. That train left the station. I think if we want in now, we're going to have to pay for it. But we do it because it protects Canadians for the reasons George outlined. And let me ask you, Mr. McDonald, because the, the, the consistent criticism dating back you know, more than a decade is that, yes, it is too costly and the technology is unproven. What would your response be to that? Unfortunately, BMD uh, enjoyed a rather negative press opinion in the, in the past. The Canadian public um, discussion about BMD was really devoid of factual information in many cases. Um, you know, there was a contract, there was concern that uh, it was uh, destabilizing from a, a global military perspective. Uh, weapons in space, Star Wars, it was going to cost too much, it didn't work, all sorts of things. Since, you know, in the 10 or 12 years that have passed since then, the, the system has evolved. There is more confidence in the ability to defend against a ballistic missile attack. And a lot of the other information uh, can certainly be better explained and, and in view of the current threat from North Korea, presumably uh, uh, everybody is well aware of that. Uh, I think it's topical now to revisit this situation. Yeah, Mr. Robertson, as a former diplomat, you're really aware of what, you know, sometimes there are subjects that are real political minefields. Why have governments, successive governments, not just the Liberals, not just the Conservatives, but both governments, been so hesitant to spend political capital on this? I think for the reason, again, George talked about Star Wars and Ronald Reagan and this kind of sense, ah, oh, do we want to be involved in that? We've always had a certain ambivalence. You go back to uh, Pearson and Diefenbaker and the Bullmark missile, uh, Pierre Trudeau and the cruise missile, but ultimately we are part of an alliance, and we're part of an alliance because the collective security gives Canadians uh, self-protection. So that's why we're, we were doing this now. I think we should have joined in 2005, but now conditions have significantly changed. And if, if a missile is headed towards a place which is beyond where the Americans can reach right now, they're not going to be protecting us. So we need to get into that system. And it's an insurance policy. Again, I don't think joining this is going to make it any more likely that uh, North Korea is going to aim at us. The other point I'd make is that the nuclear genie is out of the bottle. There's probably going to be more countries like this. We live in a world of disarray. So for our own protection, we should be looking at BMD. So skeptics will say, we heard a couple people yesterday, for example, at a, or I'm sorry, last week testify that that there there is no direct threat to Canada. And in fact, uh, someone from Foreign Affairs testified saying that they don't think of us as an enemy, rather closer to a friend. So. Does that take some of the weight out of the argument to join BMD, or is it still important in spite of that? Uh, I think we have to think of North American security rather than just Canadian security. Mm -hmm. I mean, yes, we may not be a direct target of North Korea, but if the United States were attacked or significantly impacted by it, then certainly Canadians would be as well. You know, our economies are so intertwined, the infrastructure is interdependent. Uh, so yes, I think we should be. And our NORAD partnership really mandates that we work together 
to defend against this sort of threat. And if anyone knows NORAD, it's you. You were Deputy Commander-in-Chief. That's the, the label at the time of NORAD. You were there when this was being discussed originally, more than a decade ago. Was there a hesitancy then? What can you, what can you tell us about, I guess, the discussion at the time that would maybe help us inform us about why things are such a struggle now? I think the, uh, the political decision in 2005 was a surprise to many of us. Um, the time I was Deputy Commander-in-Chief of NORAD, uh, Canadians participated actively in the exercises where we simulated attacks and defended against them with the system that was in, in place. Uh, I think I was familiar, as familiar with BMD system as most anybody, and, and the Canadians that were participating were actively involved in it, anticipating that Canada's involvement in NORAD would extend to BMD. So it was a surprise. Uh, and that was right up until early 2005. You know, we were prepared, I think, to be actively involved and contribute because it made sense and it was logical to do at the time. And North Korea has, you know, has been developing this capability for 20 years or so, so it's not a surprise that in 2017 it suddenly appeared. This has been a long-standing, uh, well-known intelligence uh, information. And Mr. Robertson, the Liberals have not been, uh, have not shown any sort of proclivity to, to join this program. They've been fairly consistent, at least you can say, on that. Is that a mistake? I think, I think so, because I think the conditions have changed. And the Defence Policy Review was the obvious opportunity to do so. But there is a piece in the Defence Policy Review which says that we will be looking with the Americans at all threats to North America. So this would give the government the political cover the need to take a look at this and say well, we needed to spend more time at it. Certainly a lot of work has been done on this. And you know, frankly, if I'm in Calgary or Edmonton and something's headed towards Seattle, but with, given the erratic range, I would want the protection that BMD would give us, because at least it's an insurance policy. Based on what you've heard so far from them, though, do you have any optimism that they are willing to reconsider their position? Well, I think the fact that we, that all parties met, as you say, last week, and that there was a full day of hearings, and what they heard, I think, uh, gave many members a sense that perhaps this is the time to look at this, and I, I don't think there'd be any opposition within uh, D&D or the forces to and a lot of work has been done and this is after all what government's about to respond to change circumstances circumstances have certainly changed because of what's taking place in North Korea I'm Vashi Capellos. You're listening to the West Block Podcast. International tobacco giant Philip Morris is calling on the Canadian government to ease its packaging restrictions and allow them to market a new type of cigarette as a harm reduction product. There are about 4 million smokers in Canada, and according to Health Canada, nearly 100 Canadians die each day because of smoking-related illnesses. So would this new product actually help reduce those numbers? Joining me now is Andre Kalanzopoulos, CEO of Philip Morris International. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm wondering, sir, can you describe in 30 seconds or less what exactly are heat-not-burn cigarettes? Um, first of all, I would like to uh, say that the objective of PMI is to achieve a smoke-free future precisely by replacing cigarettes with products that do not burn tobacco. So that's what heat-not-burn tobacco products are. Combustion is the problem in cigarettes because you burn tobacco, you create harmful substances because you create smoke. A smoke-free product doesn't have smoke, so by definition it has the potential to be much less risky than cigarettes. So that's what they are. You just have control uh, temperatures that never get to even co to any, anywhere close to combustion, I would say, and that's why you have the uh, 
much less generation of chemicals in the aerosol. So if your company is hoping to contribute to a smoke-free future, critics, of course, would ask, why not just stop selling cigarettes? I think the objective clearly is to switch consumers as fast as possible to these alternative products that are much better for their health. Now, that will take some time, but on our side, we want to achieve this as soon as possible. And on our side, we're dedicating all the resources we can. We have the products, we have the scientific evidence that we have already submitted to the FDA and other agencies. We have, for sure, uh, the commercial commitment today already, although these products at this beginning stage, they're 4% of our volume, we have 30% of our marketing commercial expenses in these products. And we have already switched more than 3 million people around the world, and we're switching 8,000 people every day. So I can assure you we're going to do everything we can to accelerate the switching. What are you hoping to achieve here in Canada, and what barriers are in your way? Well, in Canada we have 4 million smokers today. And Canada has been at the forefront of regulatory policy uh, for many years. Uh, reality is we still have all these smokers. So what we would like to have in Canada is something similar to what the FDA has done and announced recently, which is a regulatory policy that provides, if I can summarize, three fundamental elements. The first is a very rigorous assessment of novel products by the manufacturer and a rigorous evaluation by the government. The second is appropriate uh, communication to consumers about these products and also rules on how to manufacture these products and how to follow and survey, this, to use a technical term, these products once they're in the market. And the third is regulatory measures that will accelerate the switching of consumers to these products. What's puzzling to me is that today there is a, you may know, a draft law in that is coming in front of the parliament that doesn't provide, at least for tobacco products, any of these elements I just announced. And it's puzzling to me that the Canadian government does not provide with it itself with the ability to evaluate these products. And most importantly, the law in its current form seems to completely foreclose any possibility for smokers in Canada to know that these products exist. And I think we have now an opportunity, as the law comes in front of the Parliament, to address these very problematic areas, I would say, in this law. We reached out to the federal government about heat-not-burn tobacco products, and they responded to us by saying tobacco is a deadly product, and because those products contain tobacco, the ones you're talking about, they would be subject to all of the provisions of the Tobacco Act and likely would fall into the same category as regular tobacco under S5, meaning they would have to have plain packaging. So what's your response? Well, I think the... I might say the mistake in the statement is that it assumes that all tobacco products are the same. Actually, they are not, because it is the fact that we burn tobacco that creates, as I said at the beginning, all the chemicals that cause disease. It's not tobacco per se. It's something similar to say that, you know, oil is the problem for climate change. It's the fact that we burn it that creates climate change, not the fact that it exists. So I think it's wrong to assume this, and actually the FDA has recently defined very clearly that there is a continuum in nicotine. Nicotine is addictive, but is not the main cause, 
and, diff and, and different nicotine products are different in terms of risk. And that's, I think, a, a very important policy position. I think it's very wrong uh, to believe that and also tell consumers that smoke that these all tobacco products are the same. They are not. And I think there is enough science to demonstrate this. That science, though, is funded by your industry. Do you understand what the government is saying about that science not being conclusive? Do you understand that point? Well, first of all, in order to have science that is not conclusive, you have to read the science. And I recommend that this is read and evaluated. Secondly, it's not us as PMI that say combustion is the problem. All people in public health say combustion is the issue. If you don't burn tobacco, you have much less issues, if any. So I think it requires an effort, and you know our submission to the FDA is millions of pages. Uh, but I think the government needs to allow itself and, and provide itself the ability to do this. I think it will be tragic because we delay or we wait or we hesitate for whatever reason to preclude consumers in Canada from reaching uh, these better alternatives earlier rather than later. You know, very often I hear people in public health telling me, if you accept this measure, you should because it can save the life of one person. And I think we can say the same for the millions of Canadian smokers that, you know, could have access to this product, but because for whatever reason we want to delay the access, uh, they may not have it or have it much later. So I think as science advances, I think regulatory policy has to follow. Yes, it is a bit more complicated, but I don't think uh, that the discussion whether it's combustion that causes smoke, and smoke contains the uh, bad chemicals, is questionable. I think it's widespread in, in everywhere in public health. And finally, with all due respect, of course, you do represent a cigarette company, and cigarettes kill people. So why should Canadians really care about what you're saying? First of all, I, I have to say that I recognize that we have a credibility gap here, and I don't ask people to trust what I'm saying, but verify the product we put on the market and the science we provide, and I'm always welcoming and calling for independent verification. So that's to be clear. I think Canadians should care because despite all the restrictive measures on cigarettes, people do smoke today and by any projection they will continue smoking tomorrow. Canada has announced a policy that by 2035 they would want their objective is to reduce to 5% the number of smokers. I think if we adopt better alternatives to cigarettes that are non-combustible, we can get to this much faster and probably come even close to zero. And that's why I think Canadians and the Canadian smokers should care about that because I think this is perfectly feasible. It's an enormous opportunity. Okay, Mr. Kalanzopoulos, we'll leave it there. Thanks for your time. Thank you for having me. I'm Vashi Capellos. Thank you for listening to the West Block podcast. For more, go to our website, globalnews.ca slash the West Block. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and tune in again next week for another West Block podcast.